are listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. It's 8 p.m. in Israel on Monday, the 22nd of February. In the headlines, Israel kills a senior Hezbollah commander and strikes in Baalbek, 100 kilometers north of the border. Hezbollah launched 60 rockets at the Golan Heights. The IDF determined that dozens of Hamas terrorists had activated Israeli SIM cards hours before the October the 7th attack. The IDF uncovers a 10-kilometer tunnel running from the north to the south of Gaza. Qatar holds talks separately with Hamas and Israeli delegations in Doha. Interest rates stay unchanged at 4.5%. The U.S. airman who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington has died. And the weather, colder tomorrow with isolated showers in the afternoon. Good evening, this is Mark Weiss with the news on day 143 of the war against Hamas. The IDF says it eliminated a senior Hezbollah commander, Hassan Hussein Salami, in an airstrike in southern Lebanon earlier today. Salami, whose rank is equivalent to a brigade commander, was targeted while driving in the southern Lebanese village of Majadel. The IDF says Salami was the commander of the eastern unit of Hezbollah in South Lebanon and oversaw attacks on IDF troops and Israeli communities in northern Israel. Hezbollah fired a volley of rockets at an Israeli military base on the Golan Heights this afternoon in retaliation for deadly Israeli strikes on Lebanon's east. Hezbollah said in a statement in response to the Zionist aggression near the city of Baalbek, Hezbollah targeted a base in the Golan Heights with 60 Katusha rockets. Footage circulating on social media showed several rockets impacting and exploding close to a bus carrying passengers who quickly disembarked to take cover. The IDF earlier hit Hezbollah targets deep inside Lebanon, with Lebanese media reporting at least three fatalities in strikes near Baalbek in the east of the country, nearly 100 kilometers north of the border with Israel. The strikes came after Hezbollah downed an IDF Zik, or Hermes, drone this morning. The IDF confirmed the crash, saying in a statement that the David's Sling air defense system successfully intercepted a surface-to-air missile fired at the drone, but a short while later, a second missile struck the aircraft. As a result, the aircraft fell in Lebanese territory, the army said in a statement. The IDF said that due to the activation of the interceptor, sirens were sounded in the Alona Tavor region. There were no injuries. The army added that the IDF continues to defend Israel and operate in Lebanese airspace against Hezbollah. One person was also likely hurt today when a rocket struck a chicken coup in Shtula. He was taken to hospital for treatment. Defence Minister Yoav Galant said last night that even if there is a temporary pause in the fighting in Gaza, Israel will intensify the firepower against Hezbollah until it pulls its troops back from the border and evacuated residents from northern Israel can return to their homes. In Gaza, the IDF says troops killed more than 30 Hamas gunmen in an ongoing operation in Gaza City's Zaytun neighborhood over the past day. In central Gaza, IDF forces killed more than 10 Hamas terrorists. Fighting also continues in Khan Yunis. 
In three incidents in the Gaza Strip yesterday, the, an IDF officer and four soldiers were seriously wounded. Their families have been informed. At about midnight before Hamas's October the 7th attack, Israeli intelligence officials identified that dozens of terror operatives in Gaza had activated Israeli SIM cards in their phones. The IDF forces acknowledged on, the IDF acknowledged on Monday. The massacre in southern Israel was launched hours later at 6.30 a.m., during which some 3,000 Hamas terrorists stormed across the border. The IDF censor allowed some details of the SIM card case to be published after it was reported during a live Channel 14 news broadcast on Sunday, although it did not verify the report, which claimed that about a 1,000 SIM cards were activated simultaneously at midnight. But the IDF said dozens, not 1,000 SIM cards, were activated. An underground system connecting the north of the Gaza Strip to the south was unearthed by the IDF, the military announced on Monday. The underground routes ran from for about 10 kilometres and passed under a hospital and a university. An Israeli delegation is in Qatar today for continuing talks with mediators on a hostage release deal. Hamas leader in exile, Ismail Haniyeh, earlier met with Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani in Doha. The two sides reviewed developments related to the Palestinian issue, especially ways to stop the aggression against the Gaza Strip and put the Palestinian internal affairs in order, a Hamas statement read after the talks this morning. Yuval Danzig, whose 75-year-old father Alex was abducted from kibbutz near Oz, told Khan this morning that it makes no sense that civilians can be in captivity for so long. He said that from the first day he feared for the life of his father, who takes medicine and requires medical treatment, and hopes very much that he somewhere has heard how hard the family is fighting to get him out, and it gives him the will to survive. The IDF last night presented the war cabinet with a plan for evacuating the population from areas of Gaza, areas of fighting in Gaza, and with the upcoming operation there. A statement from the Prime Minister's office said a plan for providing humanitarian assistance to the Gaza Strip in a manner that will prevent looting that has occurred in the northern Gaza Strip and other areas was approved. A reporter says an evacuation from Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip where more than a million people are are sheltering, is expected to take at least two weeks. Speaking on the Fox and Friends morning show, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says that Israel has a plan to evacuate civilians from Rafah before an expected IDF operation there. On the talks to bring about a hostage release, he said that Hamas has outlandish demands. Here is an excerpt from the interview. Well, actually, uh, last night I had a meeting with the general staff and the security cabinet and the the army showed us the plan, a double plan, one for the evacuation and humanitarian assistance of the civilian population in Rafah, and second, the elimination of the remaining uh, quarter, roughly, of the uh, uh, Hamas terrorist battalions that are in Rafah. We we can't leave them uh, there because that's like leaving uh, 
a quarter of ISIS in place in a defined territory, you wouldn't do that. And in fact, you didn't do it. So uh, we're not going to do that either. But we do have a combined plan of evacuating civilians out of harm's way uh, and uh, destroying those battalions. I can tell you that Hamas will be doing everything in their power to make sure that we don't evacuate right. the civilians because they actually try to stop them at gunpoint and often at gunfire. But that's not going to stop us. We won't give them immunity. We'll get the population out. We'll continue the job to achieve total victory. Total victory is how you win the war, and total victory is how you win the peace. You can't win the peace if you don't win the war. I know you've taken out 18 of 24 Hamas battalions, but they said you've only taken out 30% of Hamas higher-ups. Many are hiding in the tunnels uh, below. If America tells you, don't go into Rafah, will you go in anyway? Well, we'll go in, we make our own decisions, obviously, but we'll go in based on the idea of having also the evacuation of the civilians. By the way, the, the, I agree with the, the U.S. on this. I don't have a, 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 a different position because our strategy right now it has always been, from the beginning, to try to get civilians out of harm's way, and we've been largely successful. The ratio of civilians to combatants killed in uh, Gaza uh, is now down below one-to-one, which is just unheard of in this kind of crowded urban warfare. But again, we'll do our best to get as many of them out. They'll have the opportunity to leave. That's not an American uh, position. That's my position. I understand, too, that one of the big stories and that everyone cares most about, especially the Americans, no offense, are the hostages. You have over 130 uh, on behind enemy lines. What could you tell us about those talks in Qatar? The word is, according to U.S. officials, the basic contours of a deal uh, are agreed upon. Would you describe it the same way? Well, I hope so. I think I think we're there. I'm not sure Hamas is there. They have what I'd call outlandish demands that's like in another orbit, another planet. They have to come down to reality. Uh, uh, and I think that if that's the case, we'll, we'll be able to have a deal. We certainly want it. I want it. Uh, look, we've already been able to free uh, half the hostages, uh, which is uh, a singular achievement, but we want the remainder too. And I've devoted my life ever since I was a young uh, commander uh, in, a, in a special unit. I myself was wounded. Right. In an attempt to release uh, uh, hostages from a hijacked uh, Sabina aircraft, my brother, uh, my older brother, was killed at the rate of while leading the storming party at the rate of Antebi, which right. released 103 uh, Jewish hostages. Uh, and we're totally committed. We just had a, a heroic operation in which we released two hostages. We just took them right. out of the jaws of the terrorists. So obviously we want this uh, deal if we can have it. Uh, it depends on Hamas. It's really now their decision because I think. Uh, I think the ground has been laid, but they have to enter the they have to enter the ballpark. They're not they're not in town yet. Only thirty seconds left. I understand uh, efforts have been stepped up against Hezbollah in the north. Do you believe war with Hezbollah is inevitable or closer now than it was before Hamas's attack on October seventh? Hezbollah attacked us on October 8th, the day after the Hamas massacre, uh, and we've ex- been exchanging blows ever since. Uh, our goal is to bring back 100,000 people who left the border with uh, Lebanon, with Hezbollah, uh, Israelis, who want to go back right. to their homes. If this can be achieved uh, diplomatically, fine. If not, it'll be achieved militarily. My preference is to achieve it diplomatically, but I can't tell you that, uh, that uh, Hezbollah right. will cooperate. In any case, we'll get these people back to their homes. Prime Minister Netanyahu speaking to Fox TV. 
Reserve Brigadier General Yossi Kupavasa, a former Director General of the Strategic Affairs Ministry and former Head of the Research Department in the IDF's Military Intelligence Directorate, says Israel will be able to resume the fighting in Gaza after any temporary ceasefire secured for the release of the hostages. In a briefing hosted by the Jerusalem Press Club, Kupavasa, who is currently a senior project manager at the Jerusalem Centre for Public Affairs, said that what made it possible for the hostage deal talks to advance is that Hamas finally seemed to realise it is not in a position to dictate terms. I think that uh, <coughs> we are going to be able to resume the fighting after the ceasefire. Uh, this is not the end of the war. Uh, we have to accomplish uh, the missions that we have uh, put for ourselves. And this is uh, defeating Hamas in Gaza and uh, uh, denying it the ability to rule Gaza and denying it the ability to carry out terror attacks from Gaza. So this is what we have to accomplish and uh, we are committed to that and uh, we should do that once the ceasefire is over. The ceasefire is, uh, is there, is going to be there if we are going to be successful in making this deal work. Uh, the ceasefire is going to be there just in order to release the hostages from our point of view. We are under, we are ready to pay a price for that because we understand that every, um, every day that uh, the hostages are still in the hands of Hamas is a torture for them. It's a t- terrible situation. We are committed to releasing them because of that as soon as possible. But uh, we have to remember that we have two goals at the same time, releasing the hostages and defeating Hamas. And we have not given up on the second goal uh, just because we are focused right now in promoting a deal that would take care of the first goal. And that is the the case. And I think the the Israeli government, uh, both Netanyahu and Gantz, are saying it uh, very clearly that we are committed to this goal. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, what uh, makes this deal possible is that uh, that Hamas finally seems to realize that they are not going to be in a position to dictate uh, conditions. Uh, yes, they are going to get all kinds of uh, stuff in, in exchange for the release of the hostages, but they are not going to dictate uh, totally uh, detached from reality conditions as they wanted until now. Uh, like forcing us to stop the fighting altogether, like forcing us to leave Gaza, uh, these are things that are not going to happen. Okay, and do you think that we'll actually be able to see through the the other steps of the deal if there's such a big gap between the first one and the and the the the, the ones that follow? Um, will we? we... Go ahead. It depends because the over the head of Hamas uh, overs our threat to enter Rafah and to finish the job uh, militarily. And, uh, and uh, this would mean that uh, Hamas would be in a very dire situation. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll eventually catch uh, and capture uh, the leadership, including Sinwar. And uh, this can be this can end in a very bad situation for Hamas. And uh, as a matter of fact, in my mind, the best way to handle this entire thing for Hamas and for everybody else is to ask Hamas to leave. To ask the leaders of Hamas to leave, to ask Hamas uh, forces that are still left in, in the Rafah area to give up and uh, to release the hostages in exchange for uh, releasing uh, some uh, terrorists from Israeli jails. That's the, that's the right thing to do right now for the benefit of everybody. But uh, since Hamas is not ready to, for this uh, option, we shall have to fight and uh, finish the job. And uh, this is what's uh, going to happen. In my mind... Uh, with this threat hovering over Hamas, there's a chance that they are going to be ready to move forward on the other parts of the deal as well. 
but this will be put to a test as we move forward. Okay, and what do you think uh, this message, what what is the message to perhaps Hezbollah in the north or in other areas that uh, Iran's proxies are operating against Israel? Are they How are they looking at this deal playing out? Uh, let's put it in uh, two different contexts. One, what they are going to say, and the second is what they are going to think. Okay, they are probably going to say that uh, this is an achievement for Hamas and uh, it's an achievement for the Iranian-led axis that they have forced Israel to release the terrorists from Israeli jails and that's uh, then to bring in more humanitarian aid and uh, maybe this is still to to be worked out, uh, maybe allow some uh, people from northern Gaza to go back to their uh, homes uh, in the context of this uh, deal. There There are going to be things that Israel is going to pay. But what they're going to think is that uh, Hamas is doomed. There, there's no way out for Hamas because uh, definitely if, if they agree to a ceasefire that in, uh, after which Israel resumes its uh, operations in Gaza and takes over Rafah, then uh, Hamas is doomed. And there's no way uh, that they are going to uh, remain as the rulers of Gaza. We are watching this uh, more, more and more moves are being taken in order to facilitate uh, that uh, new reality, this uh, expected uh, reshuffle in the Palestinian government in the coming uh, hours is uh, is one of them that uh, makes that uh, the impression that uh, Hamas is ready to give up the civilian control of Gaza, and uh, we are against the idea of bringing in a technocrat uh, government led by the Palestinian Authority. But uh, they are already moving in this direction. Uh, which means that uh, everybody understands that Hamas' story in Gaza as the ruler of Gaza is over. Something else is going to happen. There's on the one hand uh, the, the, the plan of uh, the Palestinian Authority together with the uh, United States administration to bringing in some technocrats led by the Palestinian Authority but uh, or connected somehow to the Palestinian Authority. And there's the, on the other hand, the day after plan that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has presented uh, and uh, I believe that there are more chances of the plan of Netanyahu being implemented than the, ch- the chances of the plan of Abu Mazen being implemented. So, uh, because those who rule the ground are the Israelis and not uh, the Palestinian Authority. And uh, but we should wait and uh, wait and see on that. So, one thing is clear that uh, as uh, such, the Hamas is over as uh, the ruler of Gaza. Uh, of course, we are very concerned that such a technocratic government uh, would actually take orders from Hamas and Palestinian Authority. That's why we are not going to stop at that. And the second thing that they are going to think is that all of that has been uh, possible because Israel's military operation was was successful. Successful in uh, defeating uh, Hamas in the northern part of Gaza, in the central part of Gaza. Uh, destroying uh, 18 of their 24 battalions and maybe more now. And uh, the price that uh, Hamas has paid and the price that the Palestinian Palestinian population has paid for uh, uh, launching this attack, this massacre attack uh, on October 7th, is such that uh, Hezbollah and uh, the Iranians will have to understand that... uh, it was not a very good idea to, to launch such an attack, and uh, they will have to take that into account. More than that, I would say that the uh, situation that would uh, prevail in, in Gaza uh, following the deal, and uh, bearing in mind that Israel is going to continue its operation, uh, is that uh, is the, is that move that uh, starts moving the pendulum in the regional balance of power 
uh, in, in the benefit of uh, the pragmatists, Israel, the United States, and others that are representing the civilized world uh, against uh, this uh, barbaric uh, fundamentalists led by Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. And, uh, and that is something very important uh, that for Hezbollah and Iran to take into consideration. Reserve Brigadier General Yossi Kupavasa. Now Yasmin Mualam with Yom Kippur. Defence Minister Yov Galant met today with families of soldiers being held in Gaza. He said, the defence establishment's position is clear. 
The full return of civilians to the northern area of the Gaza Strip will only take place following the return of all the hostages. Even if we will have to cease fire temporarily, we will then continue fighting until the very last hostages return. UN Chief Antonio Guterres has called for a humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and immediate and unconditional release of all the hostages while warning against an Israeli military operation in Rafah. Speaking in Geneva, where the United Nations Human Rights Council held its opening session, Guterres also said that the UN Security Council needs serious reform to its composition and working methods. Last week, the U.S. exercised its veto power at the Council to defeat a resolution drafted by Algeria on the Gaza conflict. Here is an excerpt of Guterres' remarks. The Council needs serious reform to its composition and working methods. Nothing can justify humans' deliberate killing, injuring, torturing and kidnapping of civilians, the use of sexual violence and the indiscriminate launching of rockets towards Israel. But nothing justifies the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. I invoked Article 99 for the first time in my mandate to put the greatest possible pressure on the Council to do everything in its power to end the bloodshed in Gaza and prevent escalation. But it was not enough. International humanitarian law remains under attack. Tens of thousands of civilians, including women and children, have been killed in Gaza Humanitarian aid is still completely insufficient. Rafa is the core of the humanitarian aid operation and UNRWA is the backbone of that effort. An all-out Israeli offensive on the city would not only be terrifying for more than a million Palestinian civilians sheltering there, it would put the final nail in the coffin of our aid programs. I repeat my call for a humanitarian ceasefire and the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Alongside the 2024 opening session of the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, the UN watchdog NGO UN Watch held an international summit entitled A Future Beyond UNRWA. This follows the revelations of the direct participation of agency employees in the October the 7th massacre, a stark example of the permeation of the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency by Hamas. Among the panel participants was Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva, Ambassador Meirav Elon Shachar, who welcomed the suspension of funding to UNRWA by some countries and the investigations into the allegations. But she said it is clear that Israel will no longer be able to work with UNRWA in Gaza. To me it's clear that Israel will not be able to continue to work with UNRWA in Gaza. To me it's clear. Uh, we do welcome uh, uh, the countries that have suspended the assistance uh, to UNRWA. And we welcome the two uh, investigations that were open. I do want to say about the, uh, the, in- the international review group that is headed by the foreign, <coughs> former foreign minister of, uh, of France, <coughs> Colonna, that they have included certain institutions, indeed Nordic ones, but what we would expect is also to include experts on security, counterterrorism, and vetting process, because the vetting process obviously has failed completely, completely. And this is the responsibility of the employer, 
when the United Nations employs someone, they should have a clear vetting process, which they don't have. They don't have. And you cannot roll the blame to someone else. You are the employer. So we would expect this uh, inquiry also to include experts, not only humanitarian experts, but also to include experts on counterterrorism, security and vetting, as I said. And also the TOR, the, TOR, the terms of reference of their um, commission, uh, needs to be more, um, more concise, not too broad, but more concise. What are we looking at? We are looking to see how do you actually prevent the employment of terrorists. I mean, it sounds as simple as that, but that's not in the TOR. That's not in the terms of reference. How do you ensure, how do you make sure that in future you won't employ a terrorist? How do you ensure that Hamas or the Islamic Jihad will not infiltrate your organizations and use your infrastructure to their benefit? Uh, so this all needs to be it's, it remains to be seen how they will deal with it. Instead, in, indeed, it's a very short time of, span, of uh, investigation that they have allocated themselves. But I have to say, uh, for me, uh, representing Israel, knowing what we know today on October 7th about the involvement, the direct involvement of UNRWA employees in the massacre... I don't see a way for Israel to continue to work with UNRWA in Gaza. Ambassador Merav Elon Shachar, Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva. Now a look at the stories making headlines at this hour. Israel kills a senior Hezbollah commander and strikes in Baalbek, 100 kilometers north of the border. Hezbollah launched 60 rockets at the Golan Heights. The IDF determined that dozens of Hamas terrorists had activated Israeli SIM cards hours before the October the 7th attack. The IDF uncovers a 10-kilometer tunnel running from the north to the south of Gaza. Qatar holds talks separately with Hamas and Israeli delegations in Doha. The High Court demands answers from the government after hearing petitions against ultra-Orthodox exemptions from military service. Defence Minister Gallant says the full return of civilians to the northern Gaza Strip will only take place following the release of all the hostages. Interest rates stay unchanged at 4.5%. The US airman who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington has died. The weather, colder tomorrow with isolated showers in the afternoon. Ambassador Dennis Ross, counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a former U.S. envoy to the Middle East peace process, spoke at the UN Watch Summit in Geneva today about the reforms that UNRWA must undergo and what alternatives there are for the services it provides. There's been years and years of discussion about the need to reform UNRWA, the need to replace UNRWA with different programs. Obviously, in the midst of what's going on in Gaza, that's hard to do. Uh, UNRWA is the main body responsible for distributing assistance right now. But that cannot be a reason not to take a very hard look at UNRWA and look at changes that need to be made, both in terms of how UNRWA operates on the one hand and also for basic reforms that are needed on the other. Reforms, by the way, would have other agencies begin to play a role. Uh, in place of UNRWA. So what are the key changes I think need to be made? 
number one, UNRWA can, uh, cannot be subservient uh, to Hamas. The, it's not just that it employs people who are Hamas uh, members, supporters, and so forth. That's, that we know is a fact. It's also that it's, it's clear that the, one of the most important uh, operational and intelligence centers underground uh, was underground the headquarters of UNRWA within Gaza City. The argument that this was not something that could have been known, the character of this tunnel was such that it would have been impossible to be in the building and not know or hear what was going on underneath. This was a kind of classic case of hear no evil, see no evil, and not want to discuss uh, any evil. So the subservience of, of UNRWA to Hamas, that has to end, number one. Number two, there needs to be a thorough vetting of the people who work for UNRWA. Uh, there are plenty of lists that are available. Uh, certainly the United States has a list of, of terrorists that, it, uh, that OFAC produces. There should be vetting of the people who are working for UNRWA and compared to that list. UNRWA has never been prepared to accept anything like that. That is unquestionably something that needs to be done. Thirdly, uh, beneficiaries of UNRWA uh, also need to be checked against these lists. It's not just the people who are employees of UNRWA. It also has to be those people who are benefiting from it. Uh, fourthly, uh, there has never been a needs-based standard by which uh, those who are getting support from UNRWA, material support from UNRWA, uh, are being tested. Those who are not and required, who don't require assistance, shouldn't be getting it. Quickly, mm-hmm. I'd say the, the idea that uh, every generation, no matter where they live, uh, should still be treated as if they're on the books uh, as refugees makes no sense on its face. Uh, so this is another area where I think there needs to be basic reform with regard to Uh Beyond what I would call reform, I would say there are other programs that ought to take the place. Of UNRWA. The World Food Program should be responsible for distributing food rather than UNRWA. We know that, uh, again, you, you can't go cold turkey here. You need a transition. Even if you weren't in the midst of, of a war where UNRWA is, the, is really the only vehicle for the distribution of assistance. The fact is, at some point when this is over, UNRWA was providing about 60% of all the meals uh, in Gaza before this, uh, why not focus on having the World Food Program take its place? And by the way, the the monies that are giving to UNRWA, you would deduct that and you would give that money to the World Food Program uh, so that it could be performing this role. Uh, it's also, there is also the question uh, of the refugees who are in Lebanon or who are in Jordan. In the case of Jordan, they're full citizens. Uh, and as full citizens, it's not clear why they, why, again, UNRWA should be the vehicle for this. Um, there can be other. Again, if there's, if, if UNRWA is providing material support to people in Jordan and Lebanon, that material support should still be provided, but it shouldn't necessarily, at least in the case of Jordan, where they are citizens, unlike in Lebanon, where they are not. UNRWA should not be the vehicle for it. Uh, the vehicle in Lebanon could be the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, 
But in Jordan, it, just, it should be something that's worked out with the Jordanian government, and monies that are given by different countries to UNRWA could be given directly to the Jordanian government to provide uh, to, uh, to those who are, in fact, Jordanian citizens. I mean, these strike me as an array of different kinds of reforms and or steps that could be taken and should be taken. One thing we should learn uh, from this war, uh, UNRWA, if not by design, certainly by consequence, effectively was a vehicle for Hamas. Uh, one thing that should not be the case in the aftermath of this war is that UNRWA continues to play the role it did. Again, I'm not saying it should you go cold turkey, but you should create a transition away. Because what UNRWA is doing, if, if UNRWA maintains the same role, if UNRWA is given this kind of uh, continuing responsibility, it will allow Hamas to come back in. Uh, the, there is no possibility of producing reconstruction in Gaza if Hamas remains in control. And if UNRWA is a vehicle to help it be in control, it means Hamas will continue to divert any materials away to rebuild its military capability, to reconstitute itself. Uh, and if that happens, first of all, donors won't invest in reconstruction because they know not only about the diversion of materials, but they also know sooner or later Hamas will trigger another conflict. Ambassador Dennis Ross, a former U.S. envoy on the Middle East peace process. Ayelet Samerano, whose son Yonatan was murdered by terrorists on October the 7th and whose body was abducted to Gaza by an UNRWA school worker, called on the UN Secretary General Guterres to meet with her and tell her what he will do to bring her son back. Mr. Guterres, look at my eyes and answer me. Answer me now, where is my son? You are next door, you here, and you have the opportunity to meet me today and tell me, what are you going to do? And how can you bring me back my son? I'm not an investigator and cannot answer those questions. I am just a mother who lost the most precious thing in the world. Ayelet Samerano speaking at the International Summit of Future Beyond UNRWA in Geneva today. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shteya announced the resignation of his government today. Shteya says he is resigning to follow, to allow for the formation of a broad consensus among Palestinians about political arrangements following Israel's war against Hamas. The move comes as international efforts have intensified to stop the fighting in Gaza and begin work on a political structure to govern the enclave after the war. After hearing a series of petitions today against the exemption for ultra-Orthodox from the military draft, the High Court of Justice ordered the government to explain why it should not annul a government resolution passed in 2023, which instructed the IDF not to draft ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students for nine months, and, by extension, why it should not begin drafting such men. 
The court ruling placed the burden of proof on the government to explain why its resolution is not illegal and indicated that the court is taking the petitions heard today against the measure seriously. Some 300 demonstrators protested outside the court building in favour of equality in military service. The movement for quality government which submitted the petitions along with the Brothers and Sisters in Arms protest movement and private citizens, maintains that Defence Minister Yoav Galant is exempting tens of thousands of ultra-Orthodox young people from military service in violation of the law and the court's ruling. An attorney representing Brothers and Sisters in Arms in the petition noted that the government recently stated that it will be necessary to extend a military service of drafted soldiers and reservists because of the war in Gaza, but at the same time continues to exempt yeshiva students. The court deliberations were broadcast live. Attorney Ayelet Hashachar Saidov, founder of the Mothers on the Front movement, told Khan this morning that in light of the ongoing war and the IDF need for soldiers, the state does not have time and must immediately direct the conscription of Haredi youth despite the political challenges of such a move. In economic news, the Bank of Israel Governor Amir Yaron decided today to keep interest rates at 4.5%, the second time a decision has been taken not to change interest rates since the start of the Gaza war. A U.S. airman has died after setting himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. The man was identified by police as Aaron Bushnell, aged 25, of San Antonio in Texas. Officers from the U.S. Secret Service extinguished the flames before the man was taken to hospital on Sunday afternoon. Before setting himself on fire, he said he would no longer be complicit in genocide. After setting himself on fire, he repeatedly shouted, Free Palestine! No embassy staff members were injured in the incident. A new document has been discovered that could have a significant bearing on the controversial sale of the large parking lot in Jerusalem's old city's Armenian quarter to developers who plan to build a hotel at the site. The document from 1574 purports to show that the land in question is supposed to benefit the Armenian community. And therefore, the Armenian patriarch of Jerusalem, who sold the land three years ago, had no right to do so. Jerusalem attorney Danny Seiderman, who is helping the Armenian community, spoke with us about the dispute and the latest twist. Uh, and the Armenian community in Jerusalem has roots that go back many centuries, uh, but much of it uh, 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 finds its way back to the Armenian Holocaust at the beginning of the 20th century. There's an Armenian quarter, uh, and there are um, between one, one and 2,000 uh, Armenians in that community who are left, and it's one of the more vulnerable communities in Jerusalem. Uh, it is one of the four quarters of Jerusalem, and the land transaction regarding a chunk of that um, uh, Armenian quarter is at the center of this controversy. Um, it, it turns out that the patriarchate and the patriarch signed an agreement to sell a large part of the Armenian quarter to developers. Who exactly those developers are remain cloaked in mystery, although I have rather educated guesses who that might be. This was done without the knowledge and the consent of the community. 
who were shocked to find out that this has happened. And when they looked into the matter, things became not only murkier, but more suspicious. That's pretty much where we stand. Now, I understand that last week a new document was um, discovered that has a very significant bearing on the case. Tell us about that document. One of the blessings of living in Jerusalem is that you can come across a document from the 16th century that is totally relevant for today, and that's what's happened. One of the questions that arose in the framework of this purported transaction who owns the property? Uh, it was the patriarch and the patriarch who signed the agreement selling land or leasing land for long periods as if it were their own private property. However, if you go back into the records, and we're talking about the records at the time we were in the Sharia court, it turns out that the patriarch is not the owner of this land, it is the community itself. And at best, the patriarch had our um, stewards or uh, the trustees of the ownership in the name of the real owners, which are the Armenians who live in and around the Armenian quarter of the old city. If that is indeed the case, the patriarch did not have the authority to sell something which wasn't theirs in the first place. Have you presented this document to the court? Uh, I have not, because I am not attorney of record. I am sympathetic and in contact with the Armenian um, uh, community in Jerusalem. It is a deeply rewarding thing to come across this community. It's what makes Jerusalem Jerusalem. But I'm not legally, I'm not, um, um, I am not representing them legally. Uh, but I do understand that this document has been pre- presented to court, if I'm not mistaken. And in your opinion, this is a game changer? It's difficult to say in Jerusalem what game changers are. This appears to be a highly consequential document, which could be decisive, but there are many other facts that are pertinent, and I would advise caution before deriving any conclusive uh, conclusions about this. Now, you said earlier in the interview that you could make an educated guess who was behind this uh, land purchase. Um, are you alluding to the fact that it may be right-wing Jewish settler groups? Well, you know, I, I, I have difficulty explaining why somebody sent me a photograph of the heads of one of the prominent settler organizations sitting in the lobby of a Jerusalem hotel with the purported purchasers. I have trouble explaining why when the community was assaulted by the developers who purportedly uh, um, bought the land, why the thugs that they hired to attack the residents of the Armenian quarter, among them were prominent settlers from East Jerusalem. Now, if I had a suspicious mind, I would say there's an indication that East Jerusalem settlers are behind this. But of course, I do not have a suspicious mind. Just as well. Um, Finally, what uh, would be the uh, impact 
do you think, on the small and vulnerable Armenian community, as you described them, if they lost this case? The Christian communities of Jerusalem are challenged. Um, the Christians in Jerusalem in 1948 were 20%, 20% of the population, like 31,000 out of 160,000. Today, the Christian population is on the order of one, one and a half percent. So 14,000 out of a million. Um, and they are struggling to maintain themselves, to maintain the integrity of their communities. And they're an integral part of Jerusalem. If that is the case with the Christian communities in Jerusalem, it's doubly and triply the case regarding the Armenians, who not, uh, unlike us, are survivors of a Holocaust, uh, whose homeland is um, under threat um, by Azerbaijan, uh, they are one of the most vulnerable communities in Jerusalem. And it is the, in the interest of all Jerusalemites to do nothing that will undermine the viability of these communities. We are who we are because there's an Armenian community in Jerusalem, and were there not to be, we would be a much impoverished city. Jerusalem attorney Danny Saderman, who is helping the Armenian community. Now the Kaiser Chiefs with I Predict a Riot.
predict a riot by the Kaiser Chiefs dedicated to Connor Roberts, Patrick Bumford and Archie Gray and all the players and supporters of Leeds United. The Cabinet has approved a decision to provide a response for the survivors of the festivals attacked by Hamas on October the 7th. The proposed plan will provide a network care and support for the survivors, as well as creating a clear government authority for them to contact. 20 million shekels have been allotted for the plan on top of the existing solutions. This includes emotional treatment, psychological treatment, solutions for memorials and cultures, ensuring that the victims receive everything to which they are legally entitled, employment help, and creating communal centres for meeting and work opportunities. Corporal Ori Megidish, who was kidnapped by Hamas on October the 7th and later rescued by Israeli special forces from captivity in Gaza, is returning to army service. Megidish, who was an observation soldier at the Nahal Oz outpost, will now serve in the IDF's military and military intelligence directorate. The IDF said the decision to return Megadish to service stemmed from her personal desire and sense of mission to serve the country. Parents of border observers who serve in the north say they will not let their daughters be moved to a base in the Mount Hermon sector. The parents told Khan that the soldiers fear the deployment because of the frequent rocket fire in the area, while at the same time they say they cannot carry out their role from a base that is not as close to the border. Economy Minister Nir Barakat met in the United Arab Emirates with Saudi Trade Minister Majid al-Abdullah al-Kassabi. A reporter says the encounter took place at a conference of economy ministers in Abu Dhabi, during which the two shook hands, spoke about the desire for to deepen economic cooperation between the countries and exchanged phone numbers. Barakat told the Saudi minister that the state of Israel is interested in peace with peace-loving nations and that history can be made. He also said that Israel is committed to winning the war in Gaza and eliminating Hamas regardless of the economic toil on, toll on the country. Israel's $500 billion economy has taken a hit during more than four-month war against Hamas in Gaza, during which thousands of people have left the Israeli workforce and gone to serve in the military. But Barakat made it clear that national security was not only paramount, but also vital for Israel's economy. Asked what the risk of a bigger trade deficit and other ratings downgrade might mean for Israel, Barakat told reporters, look, we're committed to winning the war. We're going to win the war regardless of anything. The Biden administration is reportedly considering imposing sanctions against figures the U.S. government views as having links to violence against Palestinians, including National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir's close associates. Until now, the United States sanctioned four Israeli residents of the West Bank whom it alleges engaged in violent extremism against Palestinians in the area. The Haifa District Court has rejected the claim by Kiryat Motzkin's suspended mayor, who was accused of corruption offences, that his political rival and the head of the prosecution department plotted a conspiracy against him. 
the mayor, Chaim Tsuri, claimed that, that that a person in the prosecutor's office responsible that the person in the prosecutor's office responsible for the case against him was coordinating with a cyber figure who whose uncle <coughs> who is the uncle of his political rival. The court said the documents presented by Tsur to substantiate the case are not authentic. Israeli security forces operating in Judea and Samaria overnight arrested 22 wanted Palestinians. More than 100,000 shekels in terror funds were seized. At a printing house in Nablus, materials containing incitement were confiscated. The weather. Colder tomorrow, with isolated showers from the afternoon accompanied by isolated thunder showers, particularly on the hills, inland and in the Negev. The rain will stop tomorrow evening. Wednesday, slightly warmer and dry. Thursday, slightly warmer and dry. Temperatures forecast for tonight and tomorrow, Jerusalem 9 to 16, Tel Aviv 11 to 21, Haifa 12 to 18, Tzfat 9 to 13, Tiberias 9 to 21, Beersheba 10 to 20, and Inilat from 12 degrees tonight, rising to 24 degrees Celsius tomorrow. Another look at the main headlines at this hour. Israel has killed a senior Hezbollah commander and has struck in Baalbek, 100 kilometers north of the border with Lebanon. Hezbollah launches 60 rockets at the Golan Heights. The IDF determined that dozens of Hamas terrorists had activated Israeli SIM cards hours before the October the 7th attack. The IDF uncovers a 10-kilometer tunnel running from the north to the south of Gaza. Qatar holds proximity talks with Israeli and Hamas delegations in Doha. The High Court demands answers from the government after hearing petitions against the ultra-Orthodox exemptions from military service. Defence Minister Gallant says the full return of civilians to the northern Gaza Strip will only take place following the release of all the hostages. Interest rates stay unchanged at 4.5%. The U.S. airman who set fire to himself outside the Israeli embassy in Washington has died. And the weather colder tomorrow with isolated showers in the afternoon. That's the news. Join us tomorrow night at 8pm on Khan Reka. This is Mark Weiss wishing you good evening and shalom from Jerusalem.